powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Better Than Before, the CEO Leaders Podcast Show. We have one clear objective to provide tools, information, and entertainment to make you better than before in business and in life. I'm Tony Richards, your host, along with Chief Producer Bill. Hello. And you can subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts, plus the C-Suite Radio Network. Just search for Better Than Before with Tony Richards. And on our show today, we have Tabitha Laser coming up. She's an expert in company culture. She's got a book out called Organization Culture Killers, and it addresses how to build a path that tomorrow's leaders can follow in order to avoid the mistakes of their predecessors. And uh, company culture is a phrase that's on everyone's mind, whether it's Google, Facebook, a small business, or a startup. We all know how important company culture is to the life of an organization. You may not have known it can be killed. So it'll be interesting to talk to her today about what kills culture and what makes it happy and, and healthy. Also, Bill, this week we received an email from Becky Wiles. In addition to being in my Leadership Columbia class this year, uh, Becky works at Affordable Equity Partners uh, here in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, it was a very short and simple email, but uh, here it is. Tony, I just wanted to say that because of your podcast, I did the word cloud activity with my team, and it was a very uplifting and morale-boosting exercise. Thank you so much, Becky. And so that's from the show we did with Lynette Smith. Right. The writing letters of gratitude uh, guest that we had on who talked about doing the word cloud exercise with your team. Mm-hmm. So Becky's already put it into practice. Yeah, that's great. I'm excited. I will see her coming up here real soon at our next Leadership Columbia class. I want to hear more about it. But Becky, thanks for the email, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, our email address is info at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Also, if you need a business advisor or an executive coach, uh, or business consultant, I'd love to work with you and uh, like to talk to you about that. I can help you with growth and executive team growth, culture, uh, changes you want to make in your business, places where you might be stuck. I'll help you get unstuck. And so today, uh, this is a common question that I get asked that I thought I'd address here at the top of the program. And that is, what are the most common behavioral situations that I see that hold executive teams back? So I thought I would give four of them here at the top of the program. Sounds good. The most common behavioral situation with any executive, and then also uh, because a group of executives make up the executive team, but the most common behavioral one that I see is blind spots. And that's usually most people's issue is something they're not aware of or something they don't see. 
that is in their behavioral performance that is either hindering their growth or causing them issues. And coming up a little bit later on the program, after we talk to Tabitha, I'm going to give you five of these pesky blind spots that leaders suffer from. And not only that, I'm not just going to diagnose you as ill and sick. I'm also going to prescribe a cure. So uh, I'm going to give five blind spots and some ways you can eliminate those. So blind spots are number one. So a blind spot that's derailing or holding back a team member or the whole team. Number two would be a talent or a strength that could be increased by adding a specific behavior or by modifying a specific behavior. So you have a a talented executive uh, or a, a talented executive with a specific strength that just because a specific behavior Uh, might be holding them back a little bit and they need to modify that behavior or they need to start doing something. So it's usually one of three things. It's something they need to stop doing, something they need to keep doing, or something that they need to start doing. Uh, Number three is the team or specific members need a leadership SWOT analysis and a tune-up, adding something for huge impact or eliminating something that's creating a constraint. And then number four, most common behavioral situation that I encounter with executive teams as a coach, that sometimes it's a specific skill that has not been developed uh, in the promotion process. In other words, they've been promoted beyond their competence. They didn't really pick up a specific skill that they should have picked up as they got elevated through the organization. And now they're at this very high level place and they don't have the skill they need. So those are four. What are some of the benefits then? So if you were to get an executive coach like me, for example, uh, or you were to hire one of your preference, what are some of the benefits from uh, working on these four situations that I talked about. Well, the number one benefit is your career can move forward and you don't get stuck or you don't get stalled. Number two is uh, the perception throughout your organization gets better and it's achieved with me as your coach or with a coach giving you ongoing feedback and advice. So the reason you have a blind spot is you don't have a complete 360 view of yourself. And that is one thing a coach can do is provide you with good uh, visibility in areas you can't pick up on or see. Number three benefit is specific leadership competencies or business competencies improve and you get better results. And number four benefit is your confidence gets bigger. Anytime you make a skill improvement, or you make a um, behavioral improvement, your confidence goes up as well. Confidence is a byproduct of predictability. So if you know you're getting better and you can see the results are happening, your confidence then begins to elevate and skyrocket. So those are four really strong benefits. Your career moves forward. You don't get stuck. Perception throughout your organization gets better about you as a leader because you're getting ongoing feedback and advice. Specific leadership and business competencies get better. Therefore, you get better results and you get increased confidence in yourself. Something I call the confidence cycle begins to take place. And through uh, improved demonstrated performance, you build your confidence, you get better, and then everything gets better, right? Everything gets better when you get better. 
If uh, you have interest in talking to us about coaching you, advising you, or consulting with you, uh, you can do that by email at info at clearvisiondevelopment.com or you can call our offices at 573-442-9673 here in Columbia, Missouri. So we've got Tabitha Laser standing by. She's ready to talk about company culture. We'll get to her in just a second. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru True Love event in Columbia. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because we grew up here and we raised our family here. This is our home, which means we care for our customers like we care for our community. Join us for the Subaru True Love event in Columbia. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. From here, been here, and we will always be here for you. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. We're so excited to welcome Tabitha Laser, uh, who's joining us from Houston, Texas today. And her latest book, Organization Culture Killers, Deadly Expectations, addresses how to build a path that tomorrow's leaders can follow in order to avoid the mistakes of their predecessors. She's an accomplished professional. She's got an extensive background in organizational culture. She's worked in companies such as BP, 3M, and many others. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you here. And I noticed that you dedicated the book to your dad. Yes. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your father. Oh, well, uh, we're originally from Louisiana. And if Jeff Foxworthy's term redneck could apply, my dad would own it proudly. Oh. Yeah. So that tells you right there, uh, starting at an early age, um, I was three when he actually caught himself on fire. Oh, my. Yeah, using gas siphoned out of his truck that he taught me, you know, that best practice how to do and then threw it onto a grill. And through my whole life, between him and the rest of my family and the places I've worked, I have experienced things done wrong in so many ways, I've lost count. Wow. Well, it was a very nice dedication. <laughs> yeah, he's also been very, very supportive and in days when women weren't really being told they could do anything he was telling me I could. So I love him forever for it. That's fantastic. What's his name? Dick Bonin. Okay, good. Now, I also noticed this particular book that you sent me before it's even released to the public. Thank you for that, by the way. Yes. Um, I noticed this is number one in a series, right? So uh, tell me a little bit about the series you're planning. Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, much like your book, I, I 
pulled it down onto my Kindle. Uh, thank you for, for the, allowing me to do that. But sure. uh, your book, you had taken many notes, right? You started taking those notes. And I've probably over the 25 plus years, I've got 15 years worth of notes where I started noticing things repeating. And uh, when I resigned from my senior level leadership position to write this book last May, I said, I'm going to write this in a week. And I sat down with my piles of notes and quickly realized there's no way. It, w- I w- it would be the largest book written. Um, and then I started thinking about the target market, which is really the future leaders, right? Sharing those learnings that you and I and others have experienced so that they don't have to do it again. And I was really f- downtrodden, I guess, at dinner. And my son said, hey, why don't you make them like the Magic Treehouse series? Of his younger brother, and I said, you know what, You've, you're on to something there. So really, this is the first of many in the series that are going to go through what I call organization culture killers and the deadly practices, and those are the things that leadership does and organizations do with the best intention that end up backfiring and actually harming their ability to succeed. So this first book really just focuses on building the expectations that form an organization's foundation. In order to be successful, the next one will be on ingraining those expectations, and then it'll move to delivering it, and then it'll move to improving and sustaining success. So those are the first set. Uh, There's many, many more to come from everything from deadly diversity, uh, deadly leadership, all of those different sets that'll be coming as well. Well, I can just envision seeing all those on my bookshelf. So I think that's awesome. One of the things you did that I really, really liked was you put um, a glossary of terms uh, in. And uh, your definition of culture in the book is an integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior, the way people do things around here. Culture is something that's always present and shifts easily depending on the situation. I like that definition. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's tons of them out there, but I just tried to capture the essence of what a culture really is. You can be anywhere. You got two people, you have a culture, you know? Right. And I think a lot of times people use it as far as justification. Mm -hmm. When something, when somebody does something, they really don't want to change. They'll say, well, that's just our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But they really don't know what they're saying. So I like, uh, I like that you've defined it for them. One of the things that I get asked a lot in Q&As when I'm uh, uh, speaking to a group or something, it never fails that somebody, usually a younger person, will ask about work-life balance. Yes. What are your What are your thoughts about that as far as culture is concerned? Oh, it's huge. And I think we're going down a really nasty hole right now away from work-life balance. Um, as big data becomes bigger and leadership gets pressed by the stock market and their shareholders and the public to deliver more results. We are going down a path, a path of destruction is what I call it. But, you know, in Asia right now, there's people working themselves to death, literally. They work so much without sleep that they kill over dead. And it's an epidemic. And I'm worried the U.S. is going in that same direction if we don't make some changes quickly. And part of that is is having a balanced, thoughtful decision process and putting in place the practices and the foundation that will encourage work-life balance 
versus the direction we're going right now, which is away from it. What, what would be an example of that? Oh, gosh. Well, coming from a consulting industry, uh, I was, you know, told you're a 40-hour salaried employee, right? Um, and you have to have the billable hours. And this is just one example. I could go to many, many, many. Um, but you have to have the billable hours. And if you don't have the billable hours, then you don't get paid, regardless of how much you work to try to get those billable hours. And I thought that was just crazy. I thought it was crazy. But I also worked for an organization that provided service to folks and they would give them 15 minute windows to get to the next customer. Right. And they actually lost a huge lawsuit, huge lawsuit because their employees weren't taking lunches. They were working through lunches so they could get their routes done. Um, So that's just a couple examples to where we're putting unrealistic expectations on our folks and we're not properly resourcing ourselves to support what we call success. And then a lot of times we don't even define success well enough or the expectations to get there to even know how to offer work-life balance. Right. I, I notice that's a big part. Deadly Expectations, of course, is the first uh, book in your series about culture killers. Uh, inevitably, people talk about the role that communication plays uh, in culture. What, what are some thoughts about good communication and how that attributes to culture? You know, that's, it's such a huge piece from the top all the way down, right? And I don't know if you've heard, we need to be clear and transparent. If I hear that one more time, I think I'm going to throw up. But they say it. Senior leadership says it. In fact, in the book, I go into the concrete barrier in quite a bit of detail. And I'm going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. And so what we do is we say we're clear and transparent, and then we send out 15 emails to the supervisors and expect them to communicate that out to their workforce. And there's such a, a gap between the communications in addition to the deadly practices, which are pushing the opposite of what we want to happen, that it's such a mess. And that's one reason I started on setting the right expectations, because you can't communicate anything well if you don't know what to communicate. Well, that was something that really caught my attention uh, in the book. You just brought it up and uh, you describe it like an elephant but it's the concrete (laughs) barriers that get uncovered in the digging down discovery process of the culture. So what is the concrete barrier? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard the term, you know, oh, from the top down, from the top down. It's not that way. And as long as we think that way, we're always going to be backwards because really the way it works is the top from the senior leadership up. They are sitting If you were building a building, they're sitting in the basement and they're building the foundation for that building. And the foundation that they're building, if if there's deadly practices in play, and and a lot of times there is, this is their mission, vision, values, and expectations, right? If they don't develop those with balanced thought in mind, as they build their organization on top of that foundation above them, right? So the workforce is actually top. And so as they build above them, if, if those deadly practices are in play from the foundation that they built that, you know, over their head, that causes so many problems. And, and the concrete barrier, you know, I've got the cartoons in my book and try to keep it fun. But really what it is is that communication barrier between setting a foundation of success for success and taking the path to success to have a culture of success that delivers sustainable success. A good example with the concrete barrier is 
the way we incentivize folks right now, especially leadership, we incentivize them to say, you know, reach these targets, reach these things versus do these things to get us to success, right? This is how you do the expectations to get to success. So what you end up doing with a lot of our incentives is you incentivize people to lie, right? If I have to have 20% increase in revenue to be able to get my bonus, that concrete barrier and that lack of communication between it, people out doing the work, they're hearing the message that we need to do whatever it takes to get that revenue up or we're not going to get our bonuses. We're not going to be incentivized. So let's see how we can manipulate that or let's see what shortcuts we can take. And that's just one example. Sure. That's interesting. Um, you also talk about one of the most destructive attributes in a culture is undefined expectations. Yes. So can you, Talk about that a little bit. Oh, I'll just I'll put this back on you. Have you ever worked somewhere where somebody one day tells you this is what you need to do and this is what our goals are for the organization and a week later a new leader comes in and it's a completely different story? Oh, I've done it, let alone have it done to me. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, I'll confess, I'll confess. <laughs> there you go. And, and again, I am not the best leader. I am not the best manager. What I am is I'm really open to learning. I'm very humble. And I'll admit, I'll take the brunt for whatever goes wrong, even if I'm not even in the country when it happens. And I think that's part of the problem is when you don't define what success is and the expectations to not just be successful, but maintain success, you know, it's not a once and done kind of thing. You need, you need to be sustainable with it. If you don't do that, then it doesn't take much, you know, just a light breeze to basically take your organization, call it, you know, the house, the building you've built, and that light breeze, it's like the, the three pigs, right? It's like building your house out of straw. If you don't have defined expectations, one person comes in and says, we're changing everything. Boom, that can kill your culture so fast. And by killing your culture, I mean killing your ability to succeed. Uh, another thing that I, I enjoyed about the book was when you talk about risk yes. and, um, you talked about how, uh, many people think about risk in financial terms, yes. but risk is really in just about everything the company does, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I've got, uh, holes in my wall from banging my head against it when I'm coaching and, and working with executives. And they're like, hey, because you, you can see a lot of my historical was in the EHS field, environmental health and safety, but I've always been more of an advisor for management systems. And, and they're like, hey, you know, you do great things, but can you just focus on the EHS risks? And I think you need to bring in the financial folks and we need one program and time and time again. No, that's different. That's different. And as long as they're kept different, the risk throughout the business, whether it's people risks, or performance risk, financial risk, you've got these huge gaps where one can contribute to the other. So you need to look at the big picture and really look at all your risks and what can actually harm your business, what can lead to failure, everything. So um, you talk about, and I, and I like to talk about decision-making quite a bit and talk about it on the podcast here today in just a few minutes, but... You talk about how leadership's decision-making skills really impact the culture. So can you expound on that just a tad? Yeah, yeah, just a tad. Um, I don't know if it's a 
fatal flaw of mine or what, but I'm a, I'm a very big picture seer. I always have been. And it's almost like I see all the different avenues. And I might miss them, but I see multiple different avenues where things can go wrong. And often I'll get in in meetings where there's discussions about change. And, again, people focus or, I, like I call it in the book, focus, right? Focus on something and screw it up. But they focus on the area that they, they know best. In doing that, they're not seeing these different avenues. And I personally have really struggled with how to communicate what's in my head, what I see. I, I mean, it's almost like visual pictures I can see of the different avenues that can go wrong. And I've really struggled to communicate that on my end. And so that's where I tried, you know, with this new scale, I'm trying to show them that when you make a decision, it's not yes or no. It's not black and white. There's many different factors that need to be pondered before you make that decision. Because if you do focus too much in one area, what you do is you increase the risk in other areas. We need a more balanced approach. And I think a lot of that just has to do with awareness. We don't do a lot of leadership training in, in the U.S. or around the world, really. We do more management training. And I think that's one of the flaws to how we make decisions. You know, you get it right or you get it wrong. There, there's no shades of gray. And, and when you're dealing with risk and important decisions and success, there's a lot of gray. And you have to consider the gray to prevent unwanted events from happening and to put in place mitigation for if something does happen. Or degrees of impact also. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, there are some decisions you make that the impact is going to be low. Right. And there's some that it's going to be medium, and there's some that are going to be, you know, high. And, I, and I've seen leaders mistake that. They thought it was a low-impact decision when actually – it was a very high impact right. decision and they were just they were just stupefied at the impact of what they decided how it had unintended consequences yes. and uh, so i i love the book uh, tell me what's what's a gem in here that really sticks out what are you most proud of what i'm most proud of is the direction i went with it because initially i was writing it for existing leaders come on guys i've been coaching you and advising you just get this right you know if you're not going to listen to me at least read the book you know it's very frustrated <laughs> very very right. frustrated and and um i so you channeled you channeled through the book right yes you can tell <laughs> my personality shows through the book um but i was i interviewed as i started putting the book together i said you know i need more so i started interviewing world leaders ceos i, I would have reached out to you had we been connected um, and one I spoke to was a, a senior leader that's actually a millennial. And he was so excited about the idea of it. He said, oh, my gosh, we don't have any training in, in leadership. And with more and more online training, these are things I don't even know. I wish there was something for me, for us. We're just craving learning, this younger generation. And I've got goosebumps now just talking about it. But it was the aha moment for me. Do you know what? You're right. It's hard to crack a tough nut that's already set in its ways, but why can't I use these books as a toolbox for future leaders, something that they can come out, grasp, we can put it in the education system. Uh, so my kids, I have a 13 and 10-year-old, you know, when they get older, it'll be a better world. And that's what I like about your book, right? It's, it's better. We're going towards better. So I, I think that's my, what I'm most proud of is the direction I went and the fact that I'm not... I'm not hounding on the old dogs. I'm starting to really try to inspire the next generation 
to be better leaders. You know, I've got a I've got a lady in my class, uh, leadership class that I teach for uh, city program here in town, and she runs an agency that helps startup businesses. And um, she came up to me after class the other day, and she said, "I've got a young man who is coming to us for help, and he's he's uh, 22, I think, 21 maybe." And uh, he really wants to meet you. And would you at all have any time for him? And I'm like, oh, sure. Just have him email me. So um, we met yesterday. I set aside about a half an hour. And and he's just got question after question after question. I'm so impressed. He's uh, burning up his paper, taking notes. And he is uh, just so hungry, you know. So I think you're on to something. I think... I think the uh, younger, uh, younger, younger end of the generation for sure is uh, definitely got an appetite for some wisdom and knowledge. Yes. Yeah, they, they definitely do. I just spoke at the University of Houston Clear Lake last week, actually, and uh, there was over 60 students that attended. So I gave them free books. I can't do that for everybody, but it's kind of the kickoff of it. I wanted to really see if the message was resonating with them. And they ate it up. They lined up for two hours to wait and talk to me after. It, and, and they were like, we just don't get this. We don't. And these are ones that go to school, not online. They're actually going to classes. And uh, a more senior leader uh, sent me an email after and actually kind of made me teary-eyed. He said, you know, I forwarded this to all my, all my employees. And he had apologized for his leadership. He said, I sat in this presentation. And to me, it was like, a review. I knew all the stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, but I looked around and these kids were just enthralled. They didn't know any of it. And he said, you know, I need to learn to lead differently, to lead better because the next generation, there's nothing wrong with them. I consider myself an early born millennial because I moved around so much and really pushed boundaries and was hungry for information, but there's nothing wrong with them. They just need to be engaged. They need to feel valued. And Honestly, if they have to go through the school of hard knocks like we did, believe me, I mean, I've, I've been medicated for depression before because, you know, I've done something so horribly wrong that I should have known better, but I didn't. Um, if they have to go through that, they're not as willing to put up with that crap. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think we as senior leaders, too, I think there's an onus on us to not be ashamed or embarrassed to admit that even though yes. even though we have known a lot over our careers, we have gotten away from it or we have forgotten it or we're not doing it. Um, we, we, we just have to get past that self-stigmatizing uh, that there somehow makes us I mean, people already know we don't have it all together, <laughs> right? I mean they, I mean they already know that. We're not hiding anything. Uh, the only Think only people we're hiding stuff from is us. So we, we need to get past all that. And that's uh, why I put the self-reflections in the book, too. I really want people, you know, you don't have to go tell the world. But take the time to say, you know, how, how am I doing it and how can I get better? Stop blaming others. I am hopeful I will make it into book two. There you so. go. <laughs> it's called Organization Culture Killers. The first book in the series is called Deadly Expectations, and we're talking with Tabitha Laser, uh, professionally known as T.A. Laser. And uh, I've got a list of closing questions I want to shoot at you here in rapid fire. 
What is the best memory that comes to mind for you? With relation to anything? Yeah, anything. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I got so many great memories, but I, I'd say one of my best memories was uh, when I was struggling actually at BP um, due to management changes. One leader, and I call him a great leader, swooped in and rescued me and did what nobody else had ever done. He said, you're, you're very smart and you have great ideas and you're passionate. He's like, but you don't know how to lead. And he actually took my hand and walked me through. He sent me to leadership training in Scotland. Where, uh, that's where I'm going with this. They actually break you down to your core. So you, under, you have to understand yourself before you can ever lead anybody. And I forever, because of the fire with my dad, thought my core was that I wanted people to be safe. And when they really, you know, they go through this exercise to break you down in the coaching training. And I started bawling like a baby and I don't cry. I started crying when I figured out my core is that I want people to like me. And here I was, I went into the health and safety field, the total opposite of what, of what my core was. And that was, that was a life-changing moment for me. Um, and even though I was crying, it was, it was almost like awakening of who I really am and, and what my purpose is and, and what better way for people to like me than to write a book that attacks everybody, no, but actually hel helps future leaders and helps my kids and, and something I'm proud of. So, so I think that was a really good moment. That leader just took me and raised me up and I learned more about myself. Who is the number one hero in your life? Oh, my gosh. Besides that leader, <laughs> it would be my, my father. Um, through all his quirks and flaws, he's been my biggest fan and my biggest supporter, even when things got awful at times. He's really been a rock for me. What is the top value you subscribe to? Oh, my top value is ethics. I don't lie. I don't have a mute button. I'll always be honest. I'm one of those people that drive the speed limit and drive everybody crazy. Although I, I do try to get there faster by being smarter about how I go there. But I worked for an organization that claimed they had, you know, they were one of the top ethical companies in, in the country. And I worked there and I did not see that. So they just had people that were good at filling out paperwork. But I, I'm very ethical in, in everything I do. Who's the most important person in your life? I would uh, have to say that probably my husband. His name's Damon. He's also been supportive, like my father. Um, we're total bipolar opposites. But every time I've come to him with challenges or ideas or whatever, he's been supportive. So when I said, you know, one night I had the epiphany that called a leap of faith that said, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. I need to do something different. I want to write these books. And I talked to him. He said, do it. We've got 401k, you know, um, let's pull from that. I know people are probably cringing when I said that, you know, we have savings and, and that he said, like, just do it, follow your, follow your passion. And uh, I don't think I would have done it had he not encouraged me to. What's your favorite thing? Oh my gosh. Um, my favorite thing in the whole world would be my children. Does that count? Yeah. What are their names? Uh, Egan and Owen. They are just amazing. Again, my son's the one who gave me the idea for the series. So what's your favorite food? Oh, chocolate. <laughs> Sweets. Anything with, with sugar in it, I think is my favorite. 
Most beautiful place you've ever been to? Um, gosh, uh, Jamaica, I'd say, followed by Rome. <laughs> if you could describe success in one word, what would that word be? Sustainable. How do you want to be remembered as a person? Someone who lived passionately. What's some advice that you would give a younger you? Read my book. <laughs> Don't do the same things I did, please, because it was I love so it. hard. <laughs> What's your favorite sound? Mm, silence. And I'm sure a lot of these are going to be in the book, but I'm going to ask you, what's the best lesson you've learned? The best lesson I've ever learned is not to cast judgment on others without knowing their story. That's some wisdom right there. Tabitha Laser has been our guest today. And uh, Organization Culture Killers is uh, the book, How Leaders Build Cultures of Success. And the first book in the series is called Deadly Expectations. When's the book coming out? It's coming out on the 19th, but I learned today it's actually available for pre-purchase online. So through Amazon um, and other media outlets. And, and what I recommend for any leaders out there, you may know all of this, but I really recommend just making it part of a toolbox for all your employees. I made it very inexpensive. I didn't make it one of these $45 leadership books. I made it very inexpensive so that, you know, you can put one in the hand of everybody and help them develop to be better leaders and, and help you attain success faster by doing so. That's awesome. We will put a link in the show notes um, to, for people to find the book and, and get it. Um, how do people find out more about you? Yeah, so I have a website, uh, talaser.com, um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so please connect with me. I, I, I communicate there probably more than anywhere else. That's wonderful. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks for connecting with us. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was great. I look forward to talking with you more. You bet. We'll have you back uh, somewhere down the road to uh, see how things are going, how the book's doing, and, and see if we can get a preview for book number two, okay? Yes, sir. Will do. Thanks, Tabitha. Take care. Thank you. You too. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because we grew up here and we raised our family here. This is our home, which means we care for our customers like we care for our community. Join us for the Subaru True Love event in Columbia. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. From here, been here, and we will always be here for you. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com.
Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards, and at the top of the program today, I talked about some common behavioral situations that I encounter as a coach with executive teams, and the number one behavioral situation I gave had to do with blind spots, where blind spot is holding or derailing a team member, or it may be the entire team that's being stalled or derailed by blind spot. And so... Here in this part of the show, I thought I'd give you five common behavioral blind spots that I see or have seen in executives uh, or in executive teams. Here's number one, avoiding tough decisions. When a tough decision comes up, the executive wants to avoid it or shove it off or delay or procrastinate in making the tough call. So there are only, you know, three or four things you can do with this as a coach. Here's what I try to do when I'm with an executive that's having trouble making a tough decision or continues to delay action. So the number one thing I try to do with them when I'm coaching them is I try to tell them, get as much information as you can. That way you're going to feel good and have some confidence about your final decision. And the most difficult decisions always have to do with people. You know, when people are involved and there's all kinds of reasons for that, depending on the relationship that you have with the person and so on and so forth. But you're going to have to make the decision and do not get trapped into thinking you don't have enough information and thinking that if you just wait a little while longer, you'll get more info or maybe if you wait a little longer that this situation will just dissipate or go away or get better on its own and You know, you're never going to know everything you could possibly know before you make the decision. So you have to be comfortable in that, you know, I know what I need to know and I just need to get on with deciding what to do here. And once you've made the decision, you need to communicate that if, if it's appropriate. Communicate your decision with your team as necessary. Uh, Some people decisions, you probably don't need to communicate all of it. Uh, because you may be violating some employment law when you do that or or something, but at least as much as you can, try to help everybody understand. And chances are, most of the time, the team already suspects and knows that uh, something should have been done quite a while ago, and most of the time, they're trying to figure out why you haven't taken action So that's not as big a deal as you possibly think it is. And finally, once you've made the decision, move on, get past it, uh, get on the road to moving forward, get on with being productive, and, and put it all behind you. I mean, that's really, really important. I mean, leaders don't always waste a lot of time on the front end. Sometimes they waste a lot of time on the back end after it's over. And when it's over, it's over. Move on. You know, managers typically don't deal with tough decisions the right way and employees have seen that a lot so their expectations on their superiors making tough decisions is really low so uh, how you deal with a tough decision is going to make or break your team's confidence in your leadership so that this is a really really important thing to deal with and uh, when you make these decisions It's going to free up your mind for other things. You can be more productive, and ultimately, that's going to make your team more productive as well. So avoiding tough decisions, we need to work on that, fix that behavior, and move on. 
Number two behavioral blind spot that I see with clients uh, is that they become overly critical. Uh, being overly critical of yourself dramatically affects your self-confidence and uh, causes you to think poorly of yourself and it clouds and colors the world around you in a bad way. When you're overly critical, it manipulates your thoughts and your thoughts become more cynical and sarcastic and in the long run that prevents you from enjoying the things that should be making you happy you become you begin to not be able to enjoy life and work in the way that you really should because you've got this very critical voice in your head uh, criticizing everything and being overly critical about every situation that comes down the pike here are some signs that I look for in an executive or a leader who may be uh, becoming more, more overly critical than they should be. They second guess themselves. They second guess other people. They pick themselves apart. They pick other people apart on every little thing. Uh, they don't enjoy much of anything. They're uh, never quite satisfied with anything. Nothing's quite good enough for them. Uh, they have a very difficult time taking compliments. Um, they're irritated a lot with just about anything you can imagine, and they complain a lot. And so uh, they're kind of like the the kid on the Charlie Brown cart, the Peanuts cartoon. The Charlie Brown car cartoon has the dark dust cloud following them around all the time, except the dust clouds in their head, right? It's it's dirtying up and clouding up their thinking. And everything is just not good. Now, so, some ways that you can work on this and, and coach this and try to fix this is lighten up. You know, just lighten up. Give yourself a break. Give other people a little break. And once you start to lighten up a little bit, you reinforce those positive behaviors. If you focus on the good behavior you want to reinforce, not the bad behavior you want to eliminate, that breaks the cycle, right? So you can't stop being critical. At the same time, you have to start doing something else. And it's, it's better to start doing the good than focusing on stopping the bad. So notice the good in your family. Notice the good in the people around you. Notice the good things that happen. Make a list of some good things that happen. And this is a tough one to break with people too. I mean, I have to really bear down as a coach to really, you know, I'm, I may have to sit down with the client and say, all right, we're going to list three to five really good things that happened to you today. Uh, or what are three, three or four things that are really good about being alive and going to work today? What is one or two things that you could really look forward to today? And so you, you really have to keep injecting those positive, good, gratitude-oriented thoughts into their head because the longer they've been doing it, the longer they've been overly critical, the more difficult it is to break that habit. And I don't know if you've ever seen the show uh, Seinfeld where George did the opposite so every time he went to go to, to do a situation he did the opposite of what he would normally do and he got great results that is what your guidelines should be when you're overly critical when you start to be critical do the opposite right be complimentary or be appreciative and uh, do an act of kindness so choose a positive interaction instead of a negative one Number three blind spot in executives that I see or coach, 
does not hold people accountable. So accountability is huge. It is, uh, I have come to believe it is one of the most critical ingredients for success in an organization. If there is no expectation of accountability and that isn't clear and communicated and followed through on, that organization is nowhere near producing the kind of results that it could. So when you're having trouble holding people accountable, here's some things. If, if I were your coach that I would talk to you about doing, I would talk to you about setting up follow-up times and appointments. So if you have people that you want to enforce accountability with, set up your times that you're going to follow up with each other for status updates and those appointments. Make sure you show up and follow up and you're engaged. Don't cancel them. Don't get too busy. Don't uh, push them off for something else you think is more important. Just follow up on the check-in when you agree to with your person. Then you need to be consistent. If you're going to follow up weekly, follow up weekly. If you're going to follow up every two weeks, follow up every two weeks. If it's a monthly check-in, do it monthly. Whatever you agree to, be consistent. Don't short-circuit it and change it at the last minute. You have to get the rhythm and flow down. And um, once you set the timing and the frequency of the follow-up, make sure you do that. Don't follow up one time and then they don't hear from you for three months and then so on and so forth. Set the timing, the frequency, and do it. Ask about actions and results. So I know the big thing in business today is results. Like, listen to this example. If a salesperson makes lots of sales calls and works hard, that's a behavioral action, and it needs to be recognized. If they're not selling, and they're, then they failed on results. Some leaders have a hard time distinguishing between actions and results and the accountabilities of each. You need to hold people accountable for both because there is a sequence of events that need to be acted upon that are best practices to get the result. So you need to make sure you're holding people accountable for those sequences and events and those actions and also the results that they produce. Another little piece of advice I'd give you is don't move your standards around. You're going to get what you expect to get. And if your expectations are low, you're going to get low. If your expectations are high, you're going to get high. So uh, be sure to let them know what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and act accordingly. If you have to apologize, I suppose that's okay. I often wonder why the leader is apologizing uh, for the lack of results, but if you have to say something like, I'm sorry, but this is not acceptable, then that's what you have to say, right? So act accordingly. Don't move your standards around. Make sure they're very clear and have been communicated and understood and authenticated that that is what your expectations are. And then have some kind of formal system for coaching results. Be sure to be on the same page with your HR department, but uh, make sure the steps to reward and the steps to punishment are recognized and communicated. So they know which way they're headed. They know when they're headed in the direction of success and they know when they're headed in the direction of failure. When you have to let somebody go, it should not be a surprise. They should know what direction they're heading at all times and in every interaction with you on accountability. Number four, this is a hard one, uh, but some executives 
And this a lot of times is in their blind spot, believe it or not, but they have anger issues. Anger issues. How do you deal with anger? Well, uh, this is this is in the wheelhouse of EQ, emotional intelligence. And so if you get better from an EQ standpoint, that will enable you to start taking a few moments to collect your thoughts. You'll learn to self-regulate before you say anything. And it will allow the situation to then regulate with you. So the situation is going to respond or react to the way that you're doing it, right? You're going to be in, in the impact zone of that situation. So if you're out of control, the situation is going to be out of control. If you're in control, the situation is going to be in control. So if you self-regulate yourself to take a few moments to collect your thoughts and you don't fly off the handle, the situation will regulate itself to that. And once you've stabilized both yourself and the situation and your thinking is clear, then you can express your frustration in an assertive but non-confrontational way. You can tell them your concerns. You can tell them what your needs are very clearly and directly without hurting their feelings and without it sounding like you're trying to control them. You see, anger is something that we use to try to gain control. When we feel like things are out of control, we get angry. And anger is the tactic that we use to try to regain control of the situation. So if you will self-regulate yourself to be in control, anger won't be needed, right? If you regulate yourself to be in control, anger won't be needed. And if you're telling yourself, I don't know, I just have to be angry, then you're lying to yourself. You don't have to do anything. You choose to be angry and you also choose not to be. So let's keep it in perspective. I often recognize if you're having anger issues, you may not be exercising enough because physical activity can help reduce that stress you're feeling. It can help uh, bring that anger down. Uh, that stress can be causing that anger, that frustration that you're not in control like you'd like to be. And if you feel your anger going up and escalating, maybe you need to go for an exercise or maybe you need to walk around the building. Or maybe you need to spend some time doing something else that you enjoy that's physical, right? And if you give yourself a few short breaks during the times of the day that tend to bother you or aggravate you or make you stressful, then a few minutes of quiet time might help you. It might get you better prepared to handle what's coming up. Never go into a meeting that's neutral when you're angry. You're the catalyst. If you take your anger into that meeting, what do you think is going to happen to the meeting? The meeting is going to go toward the distasteful, anger, bad meeting side. If you go into the meeting neutral, the meeting will stay neutral. If you go into the meeting happy, the meeting will tend to go toward a better place, right? So if you walk into every meeting thinking the meeting's neutral, then check yourself about, you know, what are you going to be as the catalyst for that meeting? And number five, oh, this is... This is one I've saved the best for last year. But number five blind spot for a lot of leaders is they want to be everybody's buddy and friend. And as human beings, we have social needs. We need close, supportive connections with other people. 
Um, unfortunately, that is not what drives the boss-subordinate relationship. The boss-subordinate relationship exists to accomplish work. If something prevents a direct report from doing their job, then that relationship goes into a rocky status. And if the direct report continues not to perform, chances are the relationship will come to an end. And most people, when they think about relationships ending, become very sad because relationship is equal to friendship. But it can't be that in the boss-subordinate relationship, right? Bosses and direct reports are not equal inside the organization. And friendships cannot survive status inequality. So very few people are friends with other people that don't share their same status. Birds of a feather flock together, you know. And inside an organization, those statuses are wide and varied. And many times a friendship can really suffer from that status inequality. Friends don't actively evaluate and try to change each other. You know, you don't get together for a poker game, have a few cigars, and critique each other. That's That, that doesn't happen most times unless you're going to different parties than I go to. They don't make their friendship contingent on change and, and improvement. You know, you don't sit down with your friend and say, listen, you're going to have to improve in some ways or we're going to have to part ways. You know, you don't. You don't do that, right? But if you're going to be an effective leader, that's what you do constantly. You're constantly assessing people's performance. You're constantly assessing their abilities. And you're pressing them in a good way to grow and change. And that creates pain. That's why we call it growing pain, right? And uh, most people's friendship cannot endure pain uh, between each other. Uh, here's another thing. Friends are not always checking up on each other. You know, you don't have to tell your friend where you are and what you're doing, but your boss, that's a different story. Uh, managers press their people to give progress reports. They press them to evaluate themselves. They press them for commitments to future results. Uh, friends have expectations of each other, but they're usually the same and mutual and they're not very demanding most of the time, right? What should the boss and subordinate relationship be then? Well, very few people take the time to define it, but I'm, I'm going to try to define it for you today on today's show. The boss subordinate relationship should never lose sight of one simple fact. It exists to accomplish work and generate results. It is a means to an end. You and your people need to connect as human beings, but always in the end, the focus has to be on the work. And of course you need to be friendly. Nobody wants to work for a cold, distant, uncaring jerk. But ultimately, not friends in the true sense of the word friends. It has to be supervisor and supervised. That is the relationship that is focused on the work and the results that the work produces. That is what the relationship basis 
needs to be about. So quickly recapping these blind spots, and maybe you heard some for yourself uh, today, but here are five behavioral blind spots I see in people, leaders, executives, as a, an executive coach. I deal with these issues every single week, I promise you. Number one, avoiding tough decisions. Number two, being overly critical. Number three, doesn't hold people accountable. Number four, anger issues. And number five, wants to be everybody's friend. I hope some of that can help you. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. You can join us for the Subaru True Love event in Columbia. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. On behalf of associate producer Whitney Coker and our chief producer Bill Foster, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards a business leaders podcast powered by clear vision development group for more resources from tony visit clearvisiondevelopment.com join us next time for another episode of better than before with tony richards This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.